Welcome to The Wondering Mind, a mental health podcast. I'm your host, Emily Elizabeth. On this show, we have candid conversations in hopes to break stigmas and show you that you are not the only one who struggles with your mental health. By sharing our stories, we can let others know that healing is possible if you work hard and put your wondering mind to it. So let's get started. Like what you hear so far? Head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review and a rating and follow the show. It would really mean a lot. It's free and it only takes a few moments. Thank you so much for your support. Are you looking for a new way to relax and center your mind? Do you live in Louisville, Kentucky? Be sure to check out Weightless Float Center in Distillery Commons. And when booking online, use promo code TWM for 20% off your first session. Hey there. Thank you so much for tuning into The Wondering Mind, a mental health podcast. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. This show is in no way meant to treat or diagnose any type of mental illness. I am not a mental health professional, simply someone that just felt called to share what I've learned and am learning along my mental health journey. Thank you so much for your support. Now let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Wondering Mind podcast. Today I have Jennifer Lee with me and (laughs) we just had some major technical difficulties prior to recording right now and it was absolutely hilarious and I'm so thankful that she was patient and we figured it out and we're all good. We're here, we're recording. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me and thank you for (laughs) bearing with me for those 30 minutes that we tried to sort that through. (laughs) You know, that's what happens, especially now with the way things are and technology, like it's bound to happen. So (laughs) it's fine. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited to have you on the show today because I've been following your account for quite a while. And honestly, I have no idea how I found you, probably through the mental (laughs) health world somehow. You're a misophonia advocate and a lot of folks, yeah, a lot of folks have absolutely no clue what that means, what that is. I know I didn't. When I first found your account and I was like, wait a minute, this is what this is. Wait. And I don't know if I technically have it, but maybe like some signs and symptoms of it. Anywho, today you're going to tell us all about misophonia and your journey. So I'm really excited for the listeners to get to learn more about you. So we'll start with the first question. It's pretty basic. What is misophonia? (laughs) Um, great. Yes, that's a, a great question to start <laughs> with. Uh, so misophonia is a disorder in which the person who suffers from it has an abnormal reaction to kind of regular everyday sounds. And so we don't have a full understanding of why it's happening, but based on recent studies, there is a kind of different wiring in the brain so that the person who has misophonia essentially experiences a fight or flight reaction to everyday sounds. So to someone clicking a pen or chewing with their mouth open, uh, a normal person, or rather not normal, someone who doesn't have misophonia 
would be able to automatically kind of filter those sounds out um, and keep moving on with their day. Whereas someone with misophonia will hear those sounds and their brain automatically recognizes those specific sounds as a threat to their environment. It's not some, a choice that they're making. It's not something that they have decided in their lifetime, like that is a threatening noise. It is a wiring issue in the brain and their body goes into a full fight, fight or flight mode. So they have all of the physiological symptoms of fight or flight mode that cascade through. Um, and it, it can be really disruptive to life. I think I can relate to that because I remember when I was in the office and there would be people behind me sitting at a desk and they would be clicking their pens or listening to their music really loud or whatever it may be. And I was just like, oh my God. So what are some of the symptoms and signs? Like when you notice those sounds, do you get agitated? Do you get frustrated? What, what are some of the things that occur? People experience it differently, but the kind of commonality behind people with misophonia is that the response to a, what we call trigger sound is uncontrollable. So whatever that response is, it's uncontrollable. So for me, my response usually is anger, rage. And then sometimes if I can't escape those sounds, just extreme despair, I'll start crying (laughs) hysterically. For other people, it's actually immediate fear. Some people experience fear rather than rage. Um, Most commonly it is like anger and rage wanting that sound to stop, needing it to go away. And some people experience more of that despair or fear, but it is always a negative emotion. Um, And then the response to that trigger and reaction are always uncontrollable is where we kind of draw the line of misophonia versus just like, I don't like that sound. It's annoying me. (laughs) Wow. So it kind of is more of an extreme reaction rather than just like a regular annoyance or irritability towards hearing something that's disrupting your peace. Right, exactly. And and so, I mean, anyone could be annoyed by someone chewing gum with their mouth open. It's not a particularly lovely noise. You don't want to sit in a room like that for, <laughs> for hours on end. Uh, but the difference would be, you know, someone who doesn't have misophonia might be able to tolerate that and eventually zone it out, or they might just be able to sit there and think that's really annoying, but you know, I can continue listening to the person who's speaking or doing whatever I'm doing. Someone with misophonia will notice that sound and will no longer be able to engage in kind of everyday conversation or function. Their brain kind of disconnects from kind of normal cogn- cognizance um, and they go into full fight or flight reaction we don't have to get into the neuroscience of it, but they have done MRI studies on this. And I mean, quite literally, the person who has misophonia can no longer uh, make formative decisions when they are in a triggered state. Wow, that's wild. I did not know any of that. And I'm sure the listeners had no clue either. So when did you first notice the signs of your diagnosis? (laughs) Yeah, so I started, uh, I guess, showing symptoms of misophonia when I was probably around eight or nine. But at the time, we didn't know what misophonia was. We'd never even heard that word, my family. So my family, of course, they took me to, you know, the first person they thought they should take me to, which was a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist. And he diagnosed me with a phobia of sound, which at the time was kind of the, the thing that made the most sense. <laughs> We now know that that is absolutely not the case. This is not a psychiatric disorder that is now proven that it was kind of under question for a while as to whether or not misophonia was 
psychology based or if there was a physiological reason behind it. We now know that there is a physiological reason. There is different wiring in the brain. So it's not just psychological or at all, actually. <laughs> so that's, that's really important to understand in that I was taken to a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with a phobia of sound. And my treatment was thus exposure therapy, which is helpful for people with phobias, not so much for someone with misophonia, not at all. If you have misophonia or you know someone with misophonia, do not ever treat them with exposure therapy. It does the opposite. Oh my gosh. I could not imagine being stuck in a room, just listening to all those sounds. And you're probably just like traumatized after that. It was, yes. Yeah. If I don't know, I, this was back in, you know, the early 2000s. So I don't know if, if anyone remembers these days, but back <laughs> when recording devices were very expensive, my family had to go out to the store and like buy a really expensive recorder, recording device and record themselves making trigger noises on this tape for me. And then I had to sit with that tape for 30 minutes every day and listen to it. And I actually threw eventually, like after about a month, I think I threw it across the room and like broke it. It was a big deal. Oh it was my like God. a really expensive recording device. <laughs> <laughs> wow. How did that progress? You know, when you were misdiagnosed at such a young age, when did you start to tap into things and realize that wasn't valid? And when did you start to do some more research and figure out what it actually was. It wasn't until more than a decade after that, actually, that I really started looking into and learning anything about even the word misophonia. So I really accepted this kind of early diagnosis of that whatever I was experiencing was psychologically based, that I was, you know, somehow mentally ill in such a way that I couldn't tolerate sounds that everyone else could tolerate. And it was only me. And I was the only person in the world who was like this. And it was just a me problem. Uh, and I, I really accepted that for all through middle school, all through high school and into college. And at some point, my brother was scrolling through the internet and found misophonia on Reddit. And he messaged the whole family. And he's like, guys, this is what's wrong with Jennifer. I'm so sure of it. Everyone look it up. And the whole family started researching it. And I had been so convinced for so long that whatever I had was unique to me and just wrong with me that I actually didn't believe it at first. I was like, no, that's something valid that other people have, but not me. Mine's different. I'm wrong. <laughs> wow. So it took me a while. Yeah. So how did that affect your mental health? Because you're going through a huge chunk of your life and especially your young adolescence where things are changing and you know, you're constantly trying to figure out who you are. How did that mess with your mental health through those, you know, phases of life? It was hugely impactful uh, on so many levels. And I, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start truly. I mean, one, just the feeling of there's something wrong with me and I don't know what it is. They don't know what it is. I must be crazy. <laughs> like I, there's just something at my core wrong with me as a nine-year-old child, feeling that and believing that to your core and then carrying that with you for over a decade um, and believing that, you know, even the, you know, as a child, the greatest minds, the all-knowing, the adults, the scientists don't know what's wrong with you. It really impacted me. So I, I developed depression at a young age. I developed anxiety at a young age as a result of misophonia. Uh, and, and it carried with me for a while. I 
um, I was bullied as a result of my misophonia because of my coping mechanisms that I developed for myself, um, which of course played into my mental health. And uh, yeah, it, it definitely, it was a struggle. I can only imagine, especially being so young because I was struggling really badly with my mental health at around that very same age. That's when things started to really show through it was affecting my schoolwork, my relationships. And I thought I was crazy. Like I had no idea what was wrong. And much like yourself, I didn't really fully understand what was going on until my late twenties. So like pretty much my whole life, I went through just thinking I was crazy. And instead of taking that information and thinking that I was the only one, you know, struggling with this, I kind of rejected the whole idea of it and just kind of lived my life in a way that I shouldn't have in way, you know, to cope. It sounds like you had certain coping mechanisms throughout. Can you tell us a little bit about what those were? Yeah. So something that appears really early on for people with misophonia, it's an innate coping mechanism that, you know, basically has been recognized uh, in really young misophones that haven't ever seen one another. They, they, it's, it's completely innate. It's not a learned habit. And it's also been noticed in people with autism who have sensory disorder. So it's, uh, it's called mimicking. And it's where you mimic essentially the sound that is triggering you in order to cope with it. Something that ideally learn how to cope without doing that. You learn other coping mechanisms as you get older because it's, it's really not an ideal coping mechanism. But as a child, it, it works well and it is your best kind of method. So as a, you know, probably nine to 12, I mimicked. So the best example of that is I had a, a fifth grade teacher who chewed gum while she was teaching. Uh, and so in order to cope with that, I would kind of gnaw on my pen and make really loud noises with my mouth in order to cope with her sound. And as a result, my classmates noticed what I was doing and thought it was funny to then make louder mouth noises. It, it was a, it was a playoff, right? It was, I had to learn new coping mechanisms, each kind of uh, phase of my life to adjust for society and what I was doing. <laughs> I can't even imagine having to physically, like having to deal with sound. I mean, sounds are all around you everywhere you go. And again, being so young, those children, they don't understand. And and they typically choose to make fun or engage and think it's a game and it, it triggers you and make things worse. And I cannot imagine how that affected you. Did it affect relationships that you had with other kids? Um, you know, I, it never impacted my, my closest friendships, And still to this day, actually, my closest friends who all are aware of my misophonia are so incredibly supportive. And I mean, to the point that not only do I have, I've obviously have taught them about misophonia, but they advocate with me and for me and about misophonia and also know my kind of weird things that I might need when I'm triggered and will support me with that in public. So it's never impacted my close relationships, but it has most certainly impacted peer relationships that, you know, people that I wasn't necessarily close with, but whom I needed a better relationship with than I necessarily had because of my misophonia. So if you were in like a work setting or at an event or something, and you had to do some kind of coping mechanism, 
I guess I assume at this stage in your life, you are comfortable with just explaining if someone asks, but how did you kind of handle that confrontation when you were younger? It's not always the case that I'm comfortable yet. I'm still working on that because it, it was so many years of me convincing myself that I was the abnormal one and that I needed to mask or cover who I am and what I needed for myself. So it is still the case that I'm relearning how to advocate for myself and what I need. For the most part, I'm getting better about it, but actually a really great example of that is I was in grad school just two years ago and I very nearly got kicked out because of one of my coping mechanisms. I had not explained what I was doing or what was going on because I was embarrassed of my misophonia. And as a result, I had to come before a review board and fully explain everything that was happening. I had to lay out my misophonia for them and all of my coping mechanisms. And that actually, as a result of that exact moment, was when I started my account for advocating about misophonia. Wow. I don't know how to feel about that, quite honestly, because that's such a vulnerable situation that you are put in against your will, basically. And like you said, it's embarrassing when you're struggling with something that you don't even fully understand or you've been told is wrong or, you know, something that needs to be fixed about yourself. It's even harder to come forward and explain to someone else, let alone a full, you know, lineup of, you know, professionals at your school. It's also sometimes, like you said, it's hard to put into words what you're experiencing. And if someone doesn't experience exactly what you do, they aren't going to understand. But I'm really glad that that kind of motivated you to start your account because I was going to ask, you know, what did motivate you to start your account? And how has that changed your, your advocacy since starting that Instagram account, Miss Misophonia? I mean, really what you see on that account is my journey that's currently happening. You're walking with me on my advocacy journey as I'm learning myself and trying to teach others how to advocate for themselves. It's been, and it continues to be and will continue to be a learning experience. That moment in time was, it it was a complete low. It absolutely crushed me. I felt humiliated and embarrassed. And then I had to sit back and think, why am I embarrassed? you know, someone who had any other disorder wouldn't be embarrassed of themselves for needing something different in order to excel and succeed in life, right? Like I'm not asking for anything more than anyone else is asking for. I'm asking for quiet when I take an exam because I cannot sit in a room with people chewing gum while they also take their exams because I can't think. I just can't do it. (laughs) It's not too much to ask for me to say, I'd like to take mine in a separate room. That's okay for me to ask that. And I started having those conversations with myself. And then I started thinking, how many other people are there out there who did what I did for 10 plus years are still doing what I have been doing to myself and saying, no, I have to blend in. No, I have to be quote unquote normal. No, I don't want to stand out and be weird and suffering because of it and allowing their education to suffer, allowing their social um, relationships to suffer, whatever it might be. And so I really wanted to reach other people with this kind of new message that I was telling myself to say, stop, like, don't worry about being different or other or weird because you're advocating for what you need in order to succeed and do well in this life. And that's okay. (laughs) 
that's remarkable that you were able to come to those realizations on your own because that's really hard to do. And I can relate to some of what you just said as well, because again, one of the things that I struggled with around the same age where your stuff started to kind of pick up around eight or nine was in school. I noticed something was off my attention. I have ADHD and anxiety and depression and all that started to like come to life around that age as well. And I'd be sitting in school, staring out the window, unable to concentrate and test taking, forget about it. I, it was absolutely traumatizing for me. I hated it. I got like absolutely the worst anxiety ever before taking a test. And they did give an option. I don't remember if it was an elementary school, but in high school, they definitely gave an option to ask for an extension if you would, you know, get a doctor's note or whatever or something like that. And I never did because I was embarrassed and I really, and my education really suffered because of it. So I'm really proud of you for coming to that realization. I know it took, you know, longer than you would have ideally liked, but going through that horrible and, you know, embarrassing experience led to something so beautiful where you can now, as you're going through your journey, share it with others so that they can maybe like miss or like skip that part and just jump to the succeeding part. So that's really awesome. That's my hope. That is absolutely my hope. I, I did my entire educational career front to back without ever asking for help or using the coping mechanisms that I really should have been using. I just look back and think, what could I have done if I had asked for help or said, Hey, I'm struggling and I need something. You know, I did well, I made it through grad school, right? I I made it all the way to the end, but what could I have done had I actually been given the tools that I needed to truly succeed? And I just want I want everyone out there who has misophonia or any other disorder or disability to realize that, you know, if you're in a room full of people who have hammers and you've got a shoe, ask for a hammer, you know? Ooh, yes. Way to put it into perspective. I mean, it's really that simple. (laughs) And honestly, if someone is sitting there or in a situation thinking about, oh, I really need to ask for help, but I don't want to you know, stick out or stand out or be made fun of or be embarrassed. I bet you, I guarantee you way more people within that room are probably thinking the same thing and are scared as well. So if you kind of get that ball rolling, you'd be amazed. It's kind of like when I started this podcast and started having conversations with people, I was like, holy shit, you all suffer and struggle with this too. Like, yeah, no fucking way. Like it was like a revelation. It is wild. And I just don't understand and I don't think we ever will, why society continues to put such a restraint on us to fit us into this type of tiny little box where we have to be perceived as perfect and quote unquote normal because there's no such thing. So I really am so proud of you for breaking out of your box and saying, no, fuck that. I'm going to promote, I'm going to advocate, and I'm going to choose to be vulnerable and share my story with everyone else that hopefully I can help someone out because it's not easy. Uh, Yeah, I really hope that I can share that message and that even just one person will benefit from it. So So how has misophonia changed your life for the better or worse? It's a loaded question, but (laughs) pick one or the other. um, (laughs) I mean, I honestly don't even know that I can 
picture my life without misophonia anymore. It's been a part of me for so long. And when I really think back, I, I don't, I can, I can somewhat remember the points in my life before sounds bothered me. But even when I think before that, I was pretty sensitive to sensory things even before that, which is really interesting to kind of retrospectively look at. So even as a two-year-old, my dad could tell you stories of me just sitting there fighting with him for three hours because I didn't like the way socks felt and I wouldn't put them on. And he would not let me go to preschool without my socks on. Like I, I just had these very <laughs> weird sensory things. There was very yeah. certain things that I just could not tolerate. And still to this day, there are sensory things. So I still wonder, are those things interconnected? Is, is misophonia tied to those kind of tactile sensory issues? Misophonia, honestly, I can't say that it, how has it impacted my life? It is my life. It's not, it's not separate from, it is, it just is, it is one with me <laughs> for the, for better or worse. I, I'm going to go with worse because, you know, it, it really limits, I won't say limit. I won't let it limit anymore, but for a very long time, it limited what I believed I could do. Um, and what I felt that I could do in my life. And I let it limit me for a very long time. And I'm still working to remove those paradigms that I put around myself, thinking that misophonia could limit me. And that's another thing that I really, really want to spread on my account is that message that misophonia sucks and it's hard as shit, but you can do it anyways. You can do it despite, and you can still live a phenomenal life. So yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm really glad you said that because you can apply that to anything that anyone is struggling with, whether you're struggling with misophonia or anxiety or depression or bipolar or schizophrenia, whatever it may be, that applies to all things that you're going through because the more you educate yourself and get yourself out of that box and choose to be vulnerable and kind of learn about how to work with what's going on, you know, how to navigate around it or through it so that you can better live your life. Cause I've been doing that, you know, and it's a constant struggle. I mean, you work at it every single day, but it really does make a difference when you kind of just say, okay, this is just a part of how I, you know, how I am, who I am. It's not who I am entirely, but it's not going to hold me back any longer. And so being able to find ways to work around it can really make a difference. So you should be really proud of yourself because you've come a long way. Thank you. And actually, if I can just follow back to something you just said as well, sure. I think a big turning point for me, not only with my misophonia, but also with my depression and my anxiety was the moment of actual acceptance for a long time, especially with depression was really critical because for so long, I refused to actually accept it. I was so determined that I didn't have depression, that my doctors were wrong, that it was just sadness, that it was just temporary because something sad had happened. So I was depressed because of this, that it wasn't actually a clinical diagnosis, that they were wrong. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and that moment of actually accepting, I have depression. That's okay. I have to buy serotonin from the store. <laughs> Who cares? Same like, girl, same. I get my serotonin from the store. Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't make enough serotonin. It's okay. That moment of acceptance is, it really was the turning point for me. And now I, I can so much better take care of myself and now do more things because of that. It really was so limiting 
not accepting those diagnoses and, and refusing those diagnoses was limiting me. And I didn't even realize it, honestly. So really accepting them, not saying that they own you, not saying that they are, you know, all that you are, but accepting them and taking ownership of them and saying, yeah, that's a puzzle piece in the, the puzzle that makes up Jennifer. It's not the whole puzzle, you know, take a piece, plug it in and then keep moving on. (laughs) Oh yes. Preach it for real though. I mean, everything you said is so true. And again, I can relate to all of it because again, when my journey first started, I was first diagnosed, I think with ADHD around nine or 10 years old. And I was like, absolutely not, not a thing, not me. (laughs) No. And honestly, (laughs) until last year, I still didn't embrace the fact that I had ADHD. And then finally last year I was like, oh shit, I really do. It's a thing. (laughs) So (laughs) so no matter how long it takes you, but I I couldn't agree more. And I think metaphor that you used, you know, or the, the example you gave of the puzzle, you know, we have this big puzzle and there are so many different pieces to make up who we are. And that's whatever you're struggling with or whatever you are diagnosed with is just a part of who you are. And adding it to the puzzle slash embracing it just makes it more beautiful. And like you said, it's just, it's easier to live your life. It's more enjoyable and you can do more things. You stop limiting yourself. So I'm really glad you said that. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of wrap things up, even though I could literally talk to you for so long, like you're so easy (laughs) to talk to. And I am just so fascinated by this subject. I just think it's the coolest thing. So thank you again for coming on and talking about it. Cause I know people that are going to listen to this are going to be like, whoa, like (laughs) I had, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So what's a piece of advice that I guess you've learned throughout your journey, whether it be, you know, in the beginning or recently that you could provide to the listeners, whether they're struggling with misophonia or something else in life that could potentially help them? Gosh, I've received so much beautiful and beneficial advice from so many people, but I think the the best advice that I would say I've probably received recently is self-care. And that sounds so general. Um, And by self-care, I want to I want to specify that I don't mean light a candle and take a bubble bath, which can be viewed as a version of self-care. And that is fantastic. But self-care is doing the things at the core that you need to do to take care of your mental well-being. So if that looks like taking a mental day off of work so that you can make your doctor's appointments that you've been putting off for a long time, because when you get off of work, the idea of having to then go and find your doctor's number and then make the call and then talk to the secretary and then find a date that works. It's all overwhelming. And so then you just put it off because that's what I do. Oh yeah. Make those appointments, like take a day off of work just to call your doctor and make an appointment. Do those things, those little things that make up self-care that you probably don't define as self-care. Those are (laughs) self-care. So all of those very little things that's what I would say is like the most important advice that has been given to me recently by my own boss, actually, who is oh, forcing wow. me to take three days off of work just to, for like my own health because she's just a wonderful human. She's like, you know what? Take three days off. Do it. So that's everyone amazing. Should do that. Everyone needs <laughs> yeah. a boss like you. I actually have a boss that I just started on her team and she's very cognizant of mental health. So that's remarkable. And she's so right. Yeah. 
we take for granted the little things like that that you said like aren't seeming or society doesn't deem as self-care but that is self-care and I feel like it absolutely is it is and if we fall behind on that and I'm guilty of it I'm so guilty of it and I'm still you know working on it but then we can't be successful we can't progress we can't help others we can't do what we're meant to do and so I think that that was great advice so thank you for sharing that yeah absolutely (laughs) so for the listeners if they'd like to follow you on your journey where can they find you on social media yeah so I am on Instagram Facebook and TikTok I'm most active on my well I'm also on Twitter but I'm most active on my Instagram which is miss m-i-s-s dot mystophonia it's also the name you can find me on on Facebook and on Twitter and and on TikTok it's all of them miss mystophonia that's me (laughs) easy peasy Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining me today. I had a great time and I, I learned a lot and I know that the listeners are going to learn a lot about misophonia and I hope that we continue to spread awareness about it because again, the more that people become familiarized with things that they are unfamiliar with, the more comfortable they become, the less, you know, they'll make a big deal of things and we can just kind of throw it into the box of quote unquote normal and continue moving on with our lives. So thank you for that. I see that you do for joining me. (laughs) thank you so much it's been such a pleasure absolutely well all righty that's all I have for today with Jennifer and thank you to the listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Wondering Mind podcast until next time maintain your brain and keep on wondering Do you want to be a guest on the show? Do you have a mental health story that you'd like to share? Email us at the Wondering Mind Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>